my general advice is that pastors should be very careful about making policy pronouncements from the pulpit on Sunday. When you start issuing your policy opinions from the same pulpit from which you read the gospel, inevitably leads to either your congregants dismissing the gospel because they think it's just another one of your opinions, or embracing your political opinions with the same authority with which they embrace your reading of the gospel. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post-culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. If you feel like you're politically homeless in this time of polarization, if you are wondering how to navigate the rhetoric of right and left, and you're hopeful that faith in Jesus might just be a stabilizing force in a tumultuous cultural moment, you are really going to want to listen to our conversation today. Brad and I are talking with Michael Ware about politics and faith and how Michael remains hopeful when politics has taken on the weight of identity for so many Christians. Michael Ware is a leading strategist, speaker, and practitioner at the intersection of faith, politics, and public life. He's the author of Reclaiming Hope and co-author of Compassion and Conviction. Michael previously served as chief strategist and member of the executive team for the AND campaign. And he was one of the youngest White House staffers in history serving in the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives during the Obama administration. Well, Michael, we have been really looking forward to talking with you. Brad and I started this podcast about a year ago when we noticed Christians being increasingly taken captive by culture instead of the other way around. And I was looking at your website the other day, and I noticed a big headline on your website says, I believe politics is a form for loving your neighbor. And I love that but I don't really feel like I see that happening. I'm wondering if you can tell us about your vision for political engagement. It seems like American Christians traditionally think through our political engagement through a moral lens about what's right or wrong, what should we be voting for or in terms of our conscience. I mean, we think about that in terms of abortion, especially, I think. But is there a better way for us to think of politics as a means of loving our neighbors? Yeah, well, the first really glad to be on. You know, I'd say the moral lens is like a really important one. And actually, you know, I think we need to take the moral knowledge that is given to us uh, through the Christian tradition, but which is real, which is, you know, for everyone, which is not just like a parochial thing. Like, I actually think we need to take that a lot more seriously hmm. um, in, in our politics Part of that sort of tradition of moral knowledge, though, uh, has to be that we're meant to love God and love our neighbor. And it's, it's this sort of like dichotomy that is, I think, so frustrating to so many people. This idea that like morality and politics looks like this very specific thing and like we'll silo it to a, a set of issues or a certain like. And it's like, no, I want to bring my whole self to politics hmm. as a Christian 
and see what it means to be faithful in public things. So I, I'm someone who believes that, um, you know, after seeing politics, you know, work up close, I, I became more convinced that the state of our politics is a reflection of the state of our souls, that mm. you cannot detach the kind of people we are from the kind of politics we have. And for Christians who ought to be in the discipleship business, who ought to be in the spiritual formation business, that should be, um, that's an invitation to us to take seriously, you know, the kind of people we are and mm. that, you know, in the, in the civic or public space, how, how does the Christian faith shape us and shape our civic character? So that's really important. The, the phrase uh, politics is an essential forum for loving our neighbors, right? There are a couple of things there. One is it's just an essential forum. <laughs> so, mm. so, you know, I, I talk to some people and they're like, no, this is like the primary thing. Mm. This yeah. is politics is the place where Christians really show who they are. And mm. I'm saying uh, it's a place. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm saying that, you know, the, the, the call for us is to follow Jesus wherever we are. And in the American context, we're each and every one of us are citizens. And so each and every one of us, like whether we like it or not, has a civic responsibility that like we don't opt into. We already have it. And so we, mm. we just like have the choice of what to do with it. But, but it's it's just it, it's a form, an essential form, an important form. And maybe we'll, we'll talk about that. So that's that's important. And then then the other piece of that, right, is like we so often go to politics thinking about only our needs and our interests. And politics is so icky and so exhausting and so infuriating that we only have like the, the energy to pursue like what we need from politics. And then the rest of it, like, you know, someone mm. else has to handle it. And, you know, I, part of the, the, the point I, I want to make to Christians is that like, that's how everyone is acting, but mm. not everyone has access. Not everyone has as uh, ready access. Not everyone mm. has opted in to the resources of the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the security that we find in the gospel that ought to free us up, not to like pretend like we don't have any interest at all. Like we should we should name what our interest in politics is and what that looks like, but we should be freed up to consider and even put to the fore the interests of others, particularly the most the most vulnerable. And that's a way to, to love your neighbor. You know, it's it's really stunning how countercultural and revolutionary what you just said, especially about that that motivation of self-interest. Because like an idiot and someone who apparently uh, loves pain and suffering, I did a sermon series on politics leading up to the, 2000, the 2020 election. And that was one of the things that in the book you co-authored with Justin Gibney and Chris Butler – compassion and conviction, that was one of the things that was the theme that stood out from all of this, is how much our politics have degraded from a, yes, look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, as Paul says. And there, 
on the right, it takes this kind of populist form. And on the left, it can take on this kind of like socialist um, uh, bent to it. And and those extremes end up being a, the same motivation, but for completely different sets of policies. And I'm, I don't want to <laughs> put you on the spot with this. Okay, I do actually a little bit. But, you know, let me also name the elephant in the room of, of current events right now in the unfolding disaster and and tragic departure of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Yeah. And like this is an area where I've been, I've honestly I've been really stunned to see some of the lines between that left and right self-interest motivation start to blur and mm. people making some of the same arguments. And it's been really confusing to 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 imbibe the news. And so can you can you maybe describe the landscape of what you're seeing from that perspective on that topic, especially, but but also maybe give us some advice on like, how do you even where do we even start disentangling this and understanding like what the Christian response should be? Yeah. So real easy question. It's a <laughs> yeah, just real quickly. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it, it's a tremendously confounding. This is a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I over the last week, I feel like my opinion can change hmm. if I hear another good argument. Like, like it's just there's just so much going on, and so much of the analysis is based on counterfactuals, right? Like oh, man. President Biden's case is is based on it. Well, if we had stayed. Would we, as history has shown us in Afghanistan and other places, you know, would, would we have been drawn into further conflict and would additional U.S. troops have been lost? Then there's, there's of course, a counterfact. If we had stayed, may, maybe the Afghan government, Afghan military just needed a bit, a bit more time. Uh, or, or, you know, I think the humanitarian case is an extra year is an extra year where... Mm. Certain people are protected. I mean, I don't know how much you want to get in the weeds here. I, I mean, right? So it's, but I, I, suffice to say, it's confounding. If you want to get into the weeds of the the policy, I'm happy to do that. I mean, I would love to hear to the degree that applying this, like, as an yes. an essential form of loving our neighbor. Yeah, that mm-hmm. I think is especially a helpful lens because I think that there are a lot of Christians who, who want to apply that and who want to yes. think through that lens, but have no idea where to start when we're looking at a complex unfolding situation. Yeah. Like that. So, so a couple points here. So, one, to, to say that politics is a forum for loving your neighbor, and so much else, you know, that, that I'll, I'll I'll say today and that I've that I've I've written is is intended first for self analysis. So these are not things that, that are primarily meant to wield against others. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you take these sorts of, oh, well, you know, you hold this position. I've judged this to not be the maximal expression of love of neighbor. Therefore, you must not really be following Jesus. Like if that's, your, if that's like the first sort of sort of move that you make when you hear this. Um, and it's, I, I had... I had this experience, uh, you know, back when we were able to like travel and like speak and actually be with other human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first started um, giving talks around my first <laughs> book, I got the sense that, you know, people were hearing about, um, you know, I would talk about the spiritual harm that our politics is causing and the fact that 
Americans are going to politics to to meet emotional and spiritual needs that politics is not intended to meet. Yeah. And uh, I I I give these talks and notice like people nodding their heads. And then after like based on the after event sort of conversations, I come away with the idea, oh, they're nodding their heads because they think I'm only talking about the people they don't like. <laughs> like, oh, man. like, like that is the takeaway. When, and so I, I have to like be uh, explicit about the fact that like, this is primarily about self-analysis. Yeah. When, when it comes to Afghanistan, um, my, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, my sure. point of view at this point, which again is, uh, you know, new information is coming out, and I've, I'm talking with a lot of folks about this. But my public position has been uh, that I oppose the the drawdown, and I oppose the drawdown. I'm I'm quite conflicted about it because I take seriously the hypothetical I've been asking. The thing that most tests my point of view is: Would I hold my position against a drawdown? Uh, if we had just seen a wave of American casualties, a wave of American troop casualties. Hmm. That is one of the primary justifications hmm. President Biden has given for wanting to draw out. Like he says, we, we, we've spent enough American treasure and American lives um, in a situation that isn't uh, where, where there's no clear end game. And I'm, I'm deeply challenged by that. And I also understand that I don't bear the burden of actually making the decision. So, right, that's a that's the tricky thing about politics generally, but especially military decisions, which is that we could all have our, our point of view. It, it's the president of the United States that bears sure. the burden of going to Walter Reed and calling families of soldiers. Yeah. And so with with that said, my, my where I've disagreed with some of the emphasis that President Biden has had is. Um, for instance, his speech earlier this week spoke in a pretty narrow way about our national interests. And mm-hmm. and my point of view has just been that r- regardless of what you think of the wisdom of the initial military action in Afghanistan and the occupation, once you're, the country makes that commitment, missional objectives and narrow national interests aren't the only things under consideration. You've now taken on the responsibility for the mm. people who who live there. Now, right, so the response to that is, well, we've yeah. spent $2 trillion. Yeah. We've, uh, thousands of Americans have died, so it's not like we haven't given anything, right? But but I, I, I tend to think that, and just to name a couple more facts, you know, pe- people are talking as if the Taliban had a resurgence just in the last, you know, week since the drawdown. No, as... as in, in 2018, the Taliban was was contending for as much as 70 percent of the territory in Afghanistan. So since we ended our combat engagement in Afghanistan in 2014, I believe hmm. the Taliban has been consol- reconsolidating strength and uh, on a trajectory that, again, as someone who's not a who's not a deep yeah. expert in these issues, se- seems to me that it was an untenable either we would have had to do another surge like. Uh, President Obama did in 2009, or we had to draw it down. There are some people who think that we could have kept 2,500 troops there, and that would have been sustainable. I, I, I don't, I, I don't yeah. see how that could be the case. But it's, so it's, yeah. it's very, it's very tough. Let me just say one more thing, right? Which yeah. is public policy and politics 
so often presents the choice to you. You mm. don't set the table. Yeah. And Man. so it's not like you're often given a choice. You know, option A is the love your neighbor option. And option B is like, you know, hate and, and be malicious towards everyone who, who gets in your way. Often the options are, well, this will help one mm -hmm. set of neighbors or one, one, this will move one objective forward and maybe harm or be indifferent to other objectives. And option B will help another, you know, love your neighbor yeah. objective forward. And so this, this is all, that this is all very, yeah. what I want Christians yeah. to think about is what have your, what is your motivation in the positions you're taking and the way that you're talking about these issues, hmm. the way that you're thinking about them. Yeah, but C.S. Lewis writes, uh, scripture doesn't offer a particular political program. Uh, scripture is to be applied by men and women in their time, in their place to the best that they can sort of adjudicate. And, and so we need to be careful about the temptation to put the stamp of religious dogma on whatever our political positions are. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like the picture you just painted really illustrates the reality that there, there are these three dynamics that we, we only have really any kind of control and even that very limited, especially on an individual basis over one of them, right? You have the fact that we live in this fallen world where there are conditions and circumstances we don't get a say in, but inherit anyway. And wishing that they were different doesn't actually help anybody. <laughs> so this yeah, is just yeah. what is inherited, right? Number two, the moral cause, the motivation that you're talking about, we don't actually get a say whether it is to love our neighbor or not, because God has already said it is to love your neighbor. Okay. Now the third one is wisdom. And apart from God's uh, omniscience and omnipotence, we are going to be perpetually limited in our ability to work that out in a way that actually achieves the number two in light of number one, right? And so like, oh my gosh. And when I think it's important to say that like Bryce and I are pastors, mm -hmm. you know, you are a, uh, you know, political consultant and author and, you know, a big deal, uh, but not necessarily in the, the, you know, foreign policy or national yeah, security. Absolutely. And like, we're all just trying to wrestle through this in, in the way that we are called to be faithful. And there's just, there are just limits to how much actually we can, we can do with that. So that's okay. But I feel like it's a really mm -hmm. good, I feel like you just, just the way that you're wrestling with that really kind of honestly is like, yeah, that I feel a lot less crazy now that that's exactly how I feel too. Yeah. And, and right. I, I need <laughs> yeah. Christians and frankly others yeah. whose emphasis is on, on one side that I may neglect sometimes or underappreciate sometimes, mm. right? Like the, mm. the church is a, it's a body. It's like part of this, I have great confidence yeah. that regardless of the political positions Christians fall on, I have great confidence that we'll be in a better direction if Christians are thinking Christianly about politics, regardless of the positions they take. I think mm. the, the, the place where we are now is that we have, many Christians mm. have bought into the, the lie that you know, Jesus is really overwhelmed by this politics stuff, you know, like he can, <laughs> it, 
you know, Jesus is like, you know, great with like your marriage. Like, you know, you, you could do some Jesus marriage counseling, you know, maybe even your finances. We've just started in the last couple of decades to to really think again about what God has to say about our vocation. But politics, that's that's corrupt stuff. Jesus doesn't like to get his hands dirty. Like, what, what mm. does he know about that? And and what I just want to uh, uh, Jesus mm. is not shaken by any of this. And when you go into the ballot box or when you are sort of uh, hmm. when you're voting on a referendum or when you're at that school board meeting, like you don't walk into that school board meeting or walk into the ballot box, close the curtain and then like walk out and have to explain to Jesus like, oh, man, it was crazy in there. You should have. You <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let me let me, you know, let me explain the situation to you because you wouldn't believe it. No, he's there. He gets it. Um, and, like and, Jesus was never presented with a false dichotomy yeah. before. Yeah, yeah that's right. I think there's, some, <laughs> I think there's some, some history there. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the other part of that dynamic, and I think this is partly what you're getting at, is this sense that if you, are a, mm. if, if you and I are both Christians, but you and I are on the opposite side of a political issue, yeah. then Jesus and I are on the right side and you are therefore my enemy. I'm aware, Michael, you worked in the Obama administration, the Obama White House. As I look back, I don't know if this is a reflection of kind of my age, but it it feels like in retrospect, that was, we kind of crossed a tipping point in terms of polarization during the Obama administration. Does it seem like that from your vantage point? Was there anything you noticed at the time? I'm also just thinking about even the the statement you made a few minutes ago the state of our politics yeah. is a reflection of the state of our souls. What was it that Jesus said that there, there is mm. nothing that is yes. hidden that, yes, that yes. will not be made public is, is what you're saying there. And if that's the case, I would say it doesn't speak very well <laughs> of the state of the soul of the church <laughs> at this point. Wait, just, yeah. Uh, is, are things getting worse or is it just my imagination? I guess that's because you just a, said that you were optimistic. So I would love for you to, to help <laughs> spread some of that optimism. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so depictions of a time of comedy where everyone, you know, went to the public square out of love of neighbor. And like, that was like, in 1950 and then like the bad stuff happened like that's not like that that's not but here's the thing so so often like <laughs> the fact that there wasn't a golden age in the past when it comes to this stuff is so often used to dismiss mm. uh, any change in the present so it's like mm-hmm. it's it, so, so like on this podcast or anywhere else mm. i have not suggested that like we need to go back to how it was at like some other time. Sure. <laughs> like I'm talking to what resources can Christians draw on that would be for the good of the public and would reflect reality as it is. <laughs> so at the end of last year, there were about a dozen and a half social scientists who came out with a new framework for thinking about polarization. And they were very clear. Like the point is not polarization was new. Like during the during the Civil War, people were caning uh, fellow senators in the U.S. Senate. Like there were there were duels. So like, um, but what they said was the kind of polarization we have right now is different. 
They called it mm. political sectarianism. And they, uh, they argued, and these are social scientists from various disciplines, they argued uh, that political sect- sectarianism is basically held up by three pillars. A moralism, and, and I refer, I, I think moralism is great. I think the problem is misplaced moralism. So I, mm. so I call it misplaced moralism. Othering and then aversion to others. They, they would argue that the differences that we see right now are not so much like, so part of their argument is the differences that we see right now are not so much about people who disagree positively. In other words, I take this position, your position is different than mine. And so we have a real, we have a real conflict here. Instead, Mm -hmm. a lot of what we're seeing in our politics is people don't have necessarily positive positions they take. What they have is reactive positions that are, that are based on an aversion to other people, to those people on the other side. So this shows up in incredible ways in our politics, um, both in like very like high level ways. So for instance, you know, one of, one of the easiest sort of examples here is there's been this immigration proposal that's been around for a couple decades now called the dream act. Uh, it was voted on at the end of the George W. Bush administration, and like 18 mm-hmm. Republicans voted for it. This the same legislation voted on under the Obama administration, like virtually, if not all of those Republicans voted against it. Those who were still in the Senate, like the mm-hmm. same the same legislation, but the the political sort of point was mm-hmm. different. And I think we, we've seen this around criminal. I, I wrote a piece. Uh, last year about, you know, criminal justice reform legislation. We, we still don't have federal criminal justice reform legislation, even after all the, the, the political sort of commitments to do so, um, t- to the point where you had Democrats voting against a bill, voting against even considering a bill that was drafted by a Republican, Tim Scott, that included proposals that they had in their own bill on the basis that what Tim Scott had didn't do enough. And my question has just been, in, 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 in what world do you vote against a bill that includes things that you support because it doesn't include other things that you also support? And the answer is, is polarization. <laughs> I mean, there, there are other, mm-hmm. an election was coming up, then, but, mm-hmm. but polarization and the way that our politics is so driven by antagonism right now. It's a what big do you problem. see? Yeah. What do you see as the primary catalyst for that? Like, why, mm-hmm. why that shift? Because that that sounds qualitatively different from what you described yeah. with, um, or, or yes. that political sectarianism yeah. seems qualitatively different from what we had experienced before, even if it's a similar dynamic. Yeah. So, uh, a few things uh, that people point to, and that 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 I agree with. One and. And some of these have become sort of conventional, like we know their problems. We just don't know how to solve them. One of them mm-hmm. is, you know, an increasingly siloed media culture. Mm-hmm. And so and I would add social media into that. So uh, there's a theologian uh, by the name of Howard Thurman. He was the mm-hmm. biggest theological influence on, on King. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, Thurman uh, talks about how hatred is developed and in that chapter, he includes a concept called contact without fellowship, by which he means like you, you, 
hatred doesn't really develop between people who don't know that the other exists, right? Like it's very hard to hate someone if you don't, if you're not thinking about them at all. Thurman argued that hatred develops when you have enough contact with people to develop a picture in your mind of who they are and why they are the way they are and what motivates them, but without actual, actual fellowship, without, without actually knowing anything real about their lives. So, you know, the, he gives disembodied relationship. Yeah. So, so right. So he gives the example of like driving through the other part, the other side of town and like looking out the car window, but that is that experience, which is so specific is basically 12 hours out of the day for everyone who is on social media or listening to talk radio or watching cable news, which is that you have this, you think that you're seeing what the uh, what the other side looks like, what people who hold a position that's different than yours look like. But actually what we're seeing is like the, the very fringe of the extreme. But that's mm. the only picture we have in our mind of, of who opposes us. So when we think mm. about, well, what kind of person opposes, uh, opposes immigration reform or opposes LGBT rights or opposes, you know, go down the list. The answer is not like, you know, the, 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 well, I had a great conversation with my, you know, my buddy at the Rotary Club and we really talked this stuff out and I could really see his point of view. No, what you think of is like the loud mouth on Twitter who's like, you know, we need to roll over everyone who opposes this and, you know, their opinion doesn't matter. And it creates a really like toxic, toxic environment. Hmm. And so that, that's a huge piece of it. A couple more quick points. I think that there are a number of structural changes that we could make that would change the incentive structure so 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 that we had a healthier politics and public square when it came to these questions of polarization. Right However, on us. the conclusion I've come to is that the both uh, the wisdom of those policies and their ability to actually work is dependent again on the kind of people we are, whether we Mm. actually desire a less polarized environment. And I'm afraid that for many of us, we we don't like polarism. Mm. uh, We don't like polarization because it makes us uncomfortable, but, but we're more than happy with a polarization that makes other people feel uncomfortable. We actually, yeah. we actually love the release of when we can finally turn mm. the table and when it's when the shoe is finally mm. on the other foot. But, mm. but what it's going to take to actually get out of this vicious cycle is for uh, there to be grace and mercy and forgiveness when the shoe is on the other foot, <laughs> not a killer instinct, <laughs> uh, not not. Hey, you know, uh, th- this is this is time for revenge. This is time mm. for reciprocation. You just kind of tripped on to uh, one of the questions that I, I've been really excited and longing to ask you, which is in Michelle Margolis's book, uh, From Politics to the Pews, yeah. she makes this data-driven observation that sometime around 2010, our, our survey research flipped from us determining our political beliefs based on our religious ones to now we are determining or or sliding into or slotting into our religious convictions based on our political beliefs. And 
you know, she she gets into this a little bit, but it seems very tertiary to her main thesis. But part of my my question for you is with what you just described, like what are our desires? What are our affections? Yes. If we don't want to, is that actually one of the symptoms of what she's describing? Because we are being more shaped by political institutions than religious institutions now because of that media and social media saturation. Can you connect the dots for us there? Like what in the world is happening? Because if we're not shaped if our political beliefs are not shaped by religious institutions anymore as much as political, then how in the world do we fix that problem of, of our, our, our desires not actually wanting to change? It is fundamentally a question of discipleship. And it's really important for uh, pastors, those who are responsible for shepherding uh, people and for Christians themselves to uh, to understand again that we have bought into this idea. And this is a longer sort of discussion about liberalism, separation of church and state. Mm. Dun, 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 but we have bought into the idea that we can be Christian in our private and personal lives, and then just take care of whatever business we need to take care of in politics, because that that area is sort of cordoned off from God, and. That has been disastrous for our politics, but it's really important. My so so I care deeply about uh, like I think our I think our politics is hurting now because of the way that many Christians are approaching politics. I think our politics could be so much healthier if Christians were healthier in the way they approach their politics. But to me, and I don't say this often because I'm often like talking with groups who who their primary concern is is improving our politics. For me, my primary concern is that it is a discipleship issue. So I'll, I'll give you an example. My pastor, in the wake of, uh, you might remember the, the shooting in Las Vegas, we held um, mm-hmm. a service yeah. of, of lament. And my pastor preached during that sermon and raised, and I'm, it's been a while, so the numbers won't be exactly right, but the, but the facts are, are, are right. Mm-hmm. The, the gist of it is right. He recalled this Barna study. And basically, the, 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 the study was a two-part question. The first part of the question was, if someone was threatening uh, your property or your family, would you resort, would, it be a, would you think uh, it, it would be okay to resort with, with violence? So, you know, you're getting mugged. Uh, as a Christian, is it okay to resort with violence to protect your, your home, your property, whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, your family. And like 75%, like a strong majority of Christians said, yes, it would be okay. And right, like, this is a debate that has a long history. I, I'm not someone who thinks that there's like a clear cut, like this is, I, like, I, I think that there are good faithful Christians who argue both sides of this. That's not the point. The point mm-hmm. is, there's a follow up question to this, which was basically like, do you think Jesus would agree with the position that you just gave? And the numbers completely flipped. So you have like a quarter of Christians saying that the answer I wow. just gave you is not the answer Jesus would give. And so wow. that goes to the very heart of wow. the discipleship question when we go to politics, which is not that like my primary concern, like, yes, I have opinions on political issues. And if you ask me about, you know, what is the best 
way of approaching this issue. Yeah, I'm happy to have that that discussion. My primary concern is uh, when we have uh, Christians who are saying Jesus would have it this way, but I, I don't trust Jesus enough to to, to have his answer. Mm. <laughs> it, it, I don't have I don't trust him enough to have the answer yeah. that I think he'd have, even like, right. Like, even if like the point is, it is it that they, that, that what they think is right. Like the problem is they think Jesus would say one thing and they consciously are saying another. And I see that in our politics all of the time. And again, wow. that's awful for our politics, but what that does to the human person, what that does to the soul is another question. And I promise you, if people are making those kinds of distinctions in their public mm. or political lives, I guarantee that the same kind of soul-splitting, soul-crushing um, disintegration is happening in other areas of their lives. Um, and that is a deeply pastoral concern. <laughs> yeah. Amen to this is a discipleship question. And I, I mean, I love how you said... Brad and I are pastors. Maybe this isn't the, the, the normal audience that you're talking to. A, a lot of our listeners are pastors who I think are just, oh, yes. ministry has turned out to be very different than we yeah. thought it was going to be in seminary because yeah. of so many of the dynamics and how, how much has changed in the last 10 or 15 years. I would love to hear your thoughts, Michael, on what, what can the local church do now? What, what can pastors do now? I mean, there, there are any number of issues, depending on where you are in your context, something happens yes. and, and you have to, you feel like you have to make a, you know, some sort of a statement, yep. <laughs> but you're like put, taking your life in your hands when you do that. And, and, and to, uh, the point isn't necessarily the position because the position, if I'm, at, let me just say this bluntly, if I'm going to say something about a political issue in a sermon I'm going to do that because yeah. it's pretty clear Jesus yeah, is yeah, on yeah. the side of, you know, life and turning the other cheek or, or, or something to that effect. Right. How do we, <laughs> I don't know if there's an answer beyond disciple people, but how do we disciple Christians to care about what Jesus says we should care about in a way that that comes out of us as we are interacting yes. in the political uh, arena, so which is anywhere just outside the walls of our house in a sense. 15, 20 years ago, you get asked by a member of your congregation out for a cup of coffee, and you're walking into that, making sure that you have your answers in order about like, you know, well, my friend who's not a Christian, go to hell. Why is there evil in the world? You know, it is, is oh, can we have um, those questions again? No, that would be great. Exactly. Yeah. So that, so I thought exactly. Now the question is like, what's your right. view on critical race theory and how soon can I leave your church because of what you're about to say? Right. And I don't want to make categorical uh, statements on this, but I, I will say for, for Christians, if, if, the, if the primary target of your activism is your pastor's sermon on Sunday, uh, then you, 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 you you might, like it's worth reflecting on on whether that's wise, what's motivating that, wh whether that's conducive to the body, whether mm. that's um, the kind of burden that you want to place on your pastor. For for pastors, I'd say a couple things. One thing I I like to remind pastors is 
when a member of your congregation is asking you to speak on a subject, it is not because they are so eager to hear what your opinion is so that they could follow it. Most of the time, they want you to speak on an issue so that they could tell Bob at the other end of the pew, like, see, our argument's settled. Like, past, the pastor just said it. So now you got to get on my side. You know, like, like no one, no one is at, like, <laughs> pastor, please, you know, pronounce, like, really study scripture intensively. Like, I'll pay for you to go on retreat. And when you come back with your answer, like, I'm, whatever you say goes, like, no, it's, 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 it's an advocacy effort, which, you know, I spent my life in, in advocacy and other, I'm, I'm pro-advocacy, yeah. but I'm not pro is, for instance, one of my favorite examples of this, well, I should say one of the examples of this that shows how silly some of this can be is, if you remember during the Obama years, the debate to, to scrap Obamacare, and they were having a big Senate vote. But before they could have this, the, the actual vote on the measure, they had to take what is known as a motion to proceed vote, which basically means the Senate has to vote to, uh, in order to vote on the bill. Well, there was, there was someone who tweeted, if your pastor yeah. does not speak out about oh, the motion man. to proceed vote, you need to leave that church. And my thought was, if the motion to proceed vote passes, then next week will be like the actual vote on the substance of the bill, which I would assume the pastor must speak about that because that's the actual, like the, the, the motion to proceed is a procedural vote. Like if, if, if really we're laying, so, so now we're talking about, and you know, the process might get dragged on. So now we're talking about every pastor in the country has to do a series on a four week series on healthcare reform or else you're you're booking with a with a substantial introduction based on Robert's rules. It sounds like no. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I just to the pastors who are um, sort of uh, to the pastors who are listening to this. I know the pressures you're facing are uh, enormous. I think um, I want you to feel freed up to pursue your calling which is not to say politics ought never come up. So uh, my my general advice is that pastors should be very careful about making policy pronouncements from the pulpit on Sunday. And the reason for that is that when you start issuing your, your policy opinions, your temporal policy opinions from the same pulpit from which you read the gospel, then that... Mm. that inevitably leads to either your congregants dismissing the gospel because they think it's just another one of your opinions or embracing your political opinions with the same authority with which they embrace uh, your reading of the gospel. And so we want to be very careful about, mm -hmm. you know, C.S. Lewis again uh, says, you know, the, uh, paraphrasing him here, but he says, you know, the, the, the major temptation when, when Christians, uh, combine faith and politics is to proclaim God hath said when he hasn't spoken at all. Uh, so C.S. Lewis lays out, he, he was considering the creation of a Christian political party in the UK. And he says, you know, the, the party might get started based on a clearer 
you know, Christian motivation, uh, like, a, like a clear galvanizing issue. The problem, he says, that happens is, well, you're a political party now, and now you have to speak into everything. And so while your founding was on, a, on you know, maybe safer ground when it came to policy, well, you're going to get dragged into debates about tax rates and all and traffic laws. Mm-hmm. And so what yeah. happens when you put the stamp of a Christian political party on, on a position that you didn't even dream of when you started the party? Um, so so I, I'd say that just a couple more mm-hmm. tips would be um, no one says that a church that does not drill wells, water wells in places that need it uh, uh, is anti-water. There's a, there's an understanding that churches don't don't drill wells typically. Now churches might send tithes to organizations that or or uh, do separate collections for organizations that drill wells or uh, give money to World Vision uh, for child sponsorship programs. But for some reason, when it comes to politics, we we, we think the, the the church and especially the church on Sunday has to be the place where it all happens. And one thing I'd say is that pastors, if they're facing this kind of pressure, should look to, in the same way that they'd express their concern for church planning, or the same way that they'd show sort of confronting poverty in the, in the places where they live, that you find a way to express and sort of redirect the emotion and the the the, the good faith sort of desire to engage in politics as Christians, that you direct that away from Sundays at church. Uh, it could be, a, you know, a Friday evening sort of lecture series or sort of advocacy kind of training, or it could be find, find a third party that you say, look, our mm-hmm. job as a church. And of course, this is, uh, I mean, just one caveat here, which is different churches and different denominations have different sort of histories and cultures. And so, in, in some churches, this would be like insane. And in, in others, it would be like way too conservative. Like, but generally, mm-hmm. like find, uh, you, you know, you can say, look, it is it is not my job on Sundays. And you should be grateful for that to put out my top five sort of policy platform. However, this is an organization that I that I generally trust Mm. that is pursuing faithfulness when it comes to these things. And I'd urge you to mm. volunteer with them. Give, uh, you know, think, think about how you could uh, sort of, if you're passionate mm. about this, uh, spend, spend your resources there. Um, just in the same way that if you care about human trafficking, you're, you're, you're directing them to IJM mm. or you're directing them to A21. And so p- pastors should, mm. should not mm-hmm. feel... Like they need to take on every burden that the current political moment wishes to place on them because the current political moment doesn't know what's good for itself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think there's a, there's a very real sense that we have to be generally well-informed about things such that we can help people navigate it with the gospel. But there's the moment we expect ourselves to be, experts on everything or the church to have a hand in our, our single individual church to have a hand in everything. The moment we've actually started believing the world revolves around us anyway. So Michael, this is, this is insanely helpful. Thank you. And I I wonder if, if you could maybe 
give us a way to follow you on Twitter and or like what is it that you're doing right now that we can be watching for, engaging with if, if anyone listening is interested in more content or more um, opportunity to engage with the things that you brought up today? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the main forums right now for my work is uh, I run a newsletter with my wife who uh, is a foreign policy uh, person um, and uh, folks can check that out at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And it's about pasta, right? Uh, no, no, I, it needs to be, but, uh, but we, <laughs> we need to find more room for, for pasta related posts there. But um, it's, it's uh, a newsletter that's received by a community of, of uh, pastors and civic leaders and journalists where we provide news curation and analysis on, on, political issues through a Christian lens. And then, um, so I actually have just started, uh, we just had our first meeting for a book club going through The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. And that's a book that changed my life. And But we have we have four meetings left as of now. Uh, and so folks can... Folks can still join if they want to if they want to hop in and all the details for that are on my Twitter page um, and my my I'm at Michael R. Ware and uh, the pin tweet is the link to join the book club. And so we'd love to see folks there. Perfect. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Dallas Willard. So I'm I'm all in on that. one. Yeah, really incredible guy. Thank you for joining us today, man. We really appreciate it, especially I think I'm struck by like I've, I've listened to a lot of you being interviewed on podcasts and I was really pleasantly appreciative of how naturally this delved into uh, discipleship and spiritual formation and how and how the church is engaged in this and how the church can be have a more uh, deeply grace-based ministry uh, in ways that are upstream of politics and ha- can contribute to it, but does not require our political involvement. And I think this is just a really important uh, perspective that you're bringing into the conversation. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. Hey, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Okay, so that was great. So Brad, what changed for you in that conversation talking to Michael Ware? Yeah, I'm actually having a little trouble answering that in terms of what changed as much as like something maybe to chew on. I really appreciated, number one, how he defined political sectarianism as like a misplaced moralism and othering and and, and an aversion to others. And then his connection with how Howard Thurman was saying that hatred is developed through contact without fellowship. And I feel like that validates and has some explanatory power over a lot of the things that we've been talking about and especially around just the the inability of us as Christians and Jesus followers to have to receive our identity in Christ such that we're actually able to 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 bring the gospel to bear toward that aversion to to others mm. that we can actually be in the same pew as he was talking about with someone who has differing political convictions and how that really feels both upstream but also kind of something that is is actually pretty actionable like that's something we can actually address in the church Hmm. through discipleship that that could change some of this. Hmm. And so just having, I think just having those categories was super helpful for me to like kind of understand how to to think about it, diagnose it, and then like figure out what to do with that. And that that was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What about you? So I really appreciated the thing he said when I asked him at the beginning about politics as a forum for loving your neighbor. And 
the way he framed that was so helpful that that often we engage in politics as a as a means of advancing our own agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think what I realized is that I read politics as a form for loving your neighbor as politics is a place to be nice. And that's not happening. And no, wow. like, as you know, like we, I've been talking about just the importance of responsibility and regardless of who's at fault or who's to blame, so much of politics is about blaming other people for the problems mm. we're experiencing. And politics is a forum for taking responsibility for the good of my neighbor, not for advancing my perspective. Of course, as Christians, like Michael said, we have perspectives and we should own that and 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 be aware of that. But politics is a forum for caring for those beyond the walls of my own house. Mm. That's what we're here to do. Man, and I, I love how that that introduces and and begs the question of, okay, how do we do that? And that's where we can actually have some some really good faith discussions around, okay, what does that mean? To what degree of responsibility and agency and how do those overlap? How do we do that? Yeah. But but until we actually acknowledge and come on the same page of, of what you're talking about, that's that's an well, impossible or, conversation. I mean, imagine if the conversation about politics amongst Christians and whether this is like amongst friends in our churches or amongst family members, if the conversation was more about is that policy the best way to love our neighbors? Hmm. Like that's not a conversation I've ever heard anybody have. Wow. And that would be a fascinating way to pursue political engagement, you know, in the way that we talk about it amongst people we actually know. Constructively. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, that would be helpful. <laughs> that would more, be more than helpful. like, what, what is the right perspective that is being piped into my head by whatever mm. media outlet I'm engaged with? It's, is this policy or that policy the better way to love our neighbors? We could still disagree about that, but that would be a huge leap forward. Well, yeah, it would, yeah, it would be, it would be the leap from viewing politics primarily as self-soothing entertainment or seeing politics as an essential form for loving your neighbor. Yeah, that's, that's a seismic shift. Yeah. So, man, this is good stuff. Yep. All right. Well, we would love to hear what changed for you as a result of this conversation as well. Let us know at kingandkingdom.community. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Bryce Hales with my friend Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back in a few weeks helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed. 